take your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Luke chapter number 18. We will continue with the singing and the worship in the vein of studying about prayer. We're in our principal parable series, and as we continue in that series this morning, we're going to be looking at praying properly. Praying properly. We have two parables that we're going to come through here in Luke chapter number 18. We'll read both of them for our our text this morning so that we have context on what Jesus is teaching us. Here's an easy one. These two are as easy as all of the ones that we're going to see. They're hard to do, but they're easy to understand because Jesus tells us very expressly at the beginning of both parables what the principle is in what he's teaching it's nice when the teacher gives you all of the answers to the test before he gives you the test. And that's what Jesus does here. Begin our reading in verse number 1 of Luke chapter number 18. The Bible says, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Dr. Luke gives us the principle that Jesus is driving home. Here's what Jesus says, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterwards he said within himself, No, I fear not God, nor regard man. Yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. In other words, listen up. Here's what you need to get from this. Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily or quickly or readily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? And he spake this parable unto, a cert, to, unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Father, this morning, as we come to these two parables, they teach us about how we approach you in conversant life, how we talk to you. Why we talk to you. Lord, help us this morning to see why we pray and what we ought to pray about. Help me to guard my own heart this morning, Lord, that I might preach accurately these two parables, that your people would listen attentively. For if we can grasp this concept of prayer and do so properly, we, like the early church, can change the world. We cease to pray as we ought and for the right things. And because of this, our spiritual growth 
our spiritual viability and success is as greatly diminished. Help us, Lord, to understand these parables. Teach us to pray this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke has recorded for us a series of parables that took place in one sitting. We looked at those in chapters 15, 16, and 17. Those parables were on salvation, on stewardship, and on service. The progression and also the process of the true Christian living as we come to them. We are saved by grace. And from then on, we manage and minister through God's grace by faith. Between those parables and these found in Luke chapter number 18, Jesus heals ten lepers. And we know from the story that only one comes back to thank him. That is actually setting the context for the parables that Dr. Luke is going to record for us here and that Jesus is going to teach. If we who are saved do not want to come back into God's presence and have communion with him, we are of all men most miserable. Amen. We're in trouble. And yet this morning as we begin the message, I ask you, how often do you spend in earnest, meaningful prayer before Almighty God? From that miracle in chapter number 18, Jesus then moves to teaching that the kingdom is within you. Excuse me, chapter 17, that the kingdom is within you. If you look back to chapter 17 and verse 21, we find Jesus saying this. Well, let's look in verse 20. The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. That was the struggle for the apostles. They wanted the kingdom to come in its fullness then. And Jesus said there's a greater kingdom than a physical kingdom, and that is the spiritual kingdom, that which is one on Calvary for you. It does not come with observation. We cannot see it as and when it comes, but it comes within you, Jesus. From there to the end of chapter 17, he talks about his second coming to this earth. To his disciples. It is at the end of that. It is within that context. It is flowing from that conversation that Dr. Luke sets forward for us two parables about prayer. So, how do we make a genuine go at being a good Christian? After all, everything in this life is built against you and I actually being godly, actually honoring Christ with our lives. Jesus is teaching us, the Spirit of God leading Luke to write the words of God, is teaching us this morning that you and I better be people that know how and when to pray. Amen. Simple answer to live successfully is to pray. Listen to some of the verses, and I could have picked any number of over 135 different verses that teaches specifically on prayer, not to mention the countless likely thousands of other verses that allude to or, or are contextually connected to prayer. But listen to just some that are very important, very useful for this morning. Jeremiah 33 and in verse 3, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Who, reading that verse, would not want to live that verse? Amen. And yet we don't call him. Well, I guess you don't want to see the mighty things of God. Jeremiah says this in verse 12 of chapter 29. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. This is the infinite God of the universe, the creator God, who is saying to us, 
if you will pray. I will listen. We don't pray. The psalmist said this in Psalm 145 and verse 18. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him. To all that call upon him in truth. In the Gospels, Matthew records this in Matthew 6 and verse 7. But when you pray, Jesus speaking, use not vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. In other words, your prayers don't have to be wordy. They just have to be sincere. The best prayer for a sinner in need of salvation is help. That's not a very long prayer. God, I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. That prayer doesn't take much. Mark chapter 11 and verse 24, Jesus said, Therefore I say I unto you, what things soever ye desire, when you pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Man, that is a powerful verse that is worthy of its own message this morning. Jesus, speaking of being connected to the vine and no longer being servants but friends, says this to us in John chapter 15 and verse 16. You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. This is the productive Christian life that God desires for us to do. He's ordained us to live this way. And he finishes this verse by saying that whatsoever ye shall, shall ask of my Father in my name, he may give it to you. By the way, an important principle for prayer is this. When we pray, we always pray to the Father, and when we close, we always close in the name of Jesus Christ. We ask his Father in his name. The New Testament epistles continue, and many verses teach us about prayer there. In Colossians 4, verses 2 and 3, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. With all praying also for us, Paul said. That God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. In other words, Paul says, listen, if you're going to be about the business of praying, it is fine to pray for your uncle's toenail. But rather, instead of making that the focus of your prayer life, pray that I might be able to rightly preach the word of God. You say, isn't it important to pray for our physical needs in my uncle's toenail? And the answer is most definitely, but that's not the primary focus of prayer. We're going to see that this morning. The writer of Hebrews said this in Hebrews 4 and verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace. You know, the Old Testament saints would have scoffed at this. And in a couple of Sundays, we'll be done with the parables, and we're going to go and study the entire book of Hebrews because it was such a transformative book for those who had held to Judaism and a religion to be truly free in the grace of God. And he says to those, particularly those believing Jews who were struggling with leaving their old religion, leaving the works-based salvation, leaving the idea of adherence to a law and following the law of grace and the law of Christ. He says, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. One last passage to understand the prayer this morning or the concept of how and when and why we should be praying. The Apostle John records these words in 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. That is powerful. If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. 
And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. In other words, when he answers, we know God is on our side. That's the power of prayer. And if you've never seen your prayers answered in any capacity, you should listen up this morning. Because the reason so often Christians don't pray is because they've never seen their own prayers Zach will deal with this from the book of James this evening. It's often because we ask in the wrong way and for the wrong thing. The truth you can take away from the Bible is that the praying believer will have his faith-filled prayers answered by a loving and listening God. We find in these two parables the why and the how of praying. God wants us to commune with him. And prayer is 50% of how we go about communing with God. The other 50% is what we read this morning, and that is through the Word of God in the Psalms that Edward read. It is through prayer that we state audibly and openly our dependency upon Almighty God. When you have the understanding of prayer that is given in these two parables, you understand you control nothing in this life. And that everything in this life ought to be brought to him in prayer. Because our enemies are real. Jesus lays out for us the purpose and pattern for praying properly. He begins by teaching us first prayer's persistent purpose. There's a lot of P's this morning, so I've been practicing my articulation. <laughs> prayer's persistent purpose. Luke records, men ought always to pray and not to faint. That is persistent. Friend, if you don't care about something, God doesn't care about it. You say, well, sometimes I don't care about world peace. You mean God doesn't? Not if you're not praying for it. If you don't care about something from this parable, then God is in, in heaven is going to say, I don't care about it either. The judge here was reminded constantly. You say, well, God doesn't forget anything. No, God's never forgotten one thing. But God wants to make sure that what's important in our life is brought before him. What he's going to do in that process, by the way, is whittle away all the things that aren't important. So that we understand the key, the, the absolute essential things in our lives. The important things in our life, we pray for them. Before we had kids, Jessica and I began praying for our children. Now we know that's going to be three boys. We prayed that we would teach and lead them in the right way. We prayed for their health. We prayed for their development into young, godly men that pleased the Lord. Not always necessarily pleased their parents, but they would always please the Lord. We've even prayed from before they were born that they would meet and marry godly young ladies. Who would be God-designed helpmeets for them. Who would enable them to deepen and grow in their faith as opposed to pulling them away from their faith. We have prayed consistently. I will tell you this. My wife has prayed even more consistently than I have. But I've prayed generally on a daily basis for my boys for whom they will marry and how they will live. Does that guarantee their success? It guarantees that I'm invested in their success. Well, prayer does. By the way, they might marry some of your daughters. And if your daughters marry my boys, you should be praying right now. <laughs> that might be why Jessica prays every day. Because she married me and she thought, man, if I'd just know. 
necessarily God. Persistent prayer is about changing what is important to us. That's what this parable is telling us. If we prayed a prayer at our, our children's baby dedication and never prayed for their lives again, would we be serious about raising them, training them, or teaching them? And the answer obviously would be no. Friends, we pray for so many trivial things in our lives. We put so many unimportant matters before Almighty God. And we expect him to answer our every whim and every wish like he's our genie. He's not our genie, he's our God. This parable teaches us very simply that God wants us to pray without ceasing about a very few small category of things that are truly important in this life. Notice first in our persistent prayer the determination of the seeker. Oh, this woman. Now, if we were to just extrapolate and not take the parable as a prayer or about prayer, and it is, and Jesus didn't give us the context and the meaning of the parable, and we just stopped with the answer of the unjust judge, we might say, yeah, I've known some people like that. Right? The old saying in the business world is the squeaky wheel gets what? Grease. Grease or oil. She's not a squeaky wheel here, though she might appear that way on the surface. She constantly comes back to this judge over and over and over and over about a singular topic that was very important to her. She did not come to this judge and bring a multitude of topics on a multitude of areas of her life. She said one thing simply, avenge me of my adversary. That's it. The person who is my enemy, the one who has wronged me, God, in this case, judge, I want you to acquit me. And accuse them. I want you to pass judgment on them. I want you to do your work on my adversary because I can't do it. Friend, that's a powerful prayer for a Christian to pray. And it seems to be the core of our purpose in prayer. We are to be praying not necessarily for our health and our well-being. We're not necessarily to be praying about our wealth and our status in life. We are to be praying that our adversaries are put to judgment. Who are our adversaries in this life? Our persistence is based upon our war, upon our grievances with those that are our adversaries. This woman was assaulted by the enemy. Friend, the church, the bride of Christ, is assaulted by three adversaries. You this morning face three adversaries. The world, the devil, and your flesh are your adversaries. And in your persistent prayer, the purpose for you to pray is so that you would effectively wage war against them through God's strength. Amen. Those are your adversaries in this life. Every human being that draws breath in this life has to do battle against them. And it is the right and proper prayer to bring before Almighty God, God, I want you to avenge me. Do you pray that? Are you concerned with that? Our prayer life is to be purposefully persistent in our spiritual warfare. Jesus gives the picture of an unjust judge just so that we understand when we pivot to a just judge in verse number 7 that God, in verse 7, shall avenge his own elect. 
which cried day and night unto him, though he bear long with them. In other words, though he forestalls his judgment on those three adversaries. And friend, it's coming. In this life, we are to pray, God, help me to mortify my flesh. God, help me not to be filled with the world. God, do not let me give a foothold to the devil. We pray against our adversaries, and we let God work. Amen. That's what this parable is teaching. Men ought always to pray and not faint. Prayer is seeking diligently and determinedly in the areas of our life where we are incapable of doing the will of God. You cannot conquer your flesh on your own. That's an adversary too great for you. Think of this woman. God uses, Jesus uses this parable on purpose. This woman had no power. She had no ability in herself. She could only go to the judge and say, I can trust in you to overcome the adversary. That's what you must do in your prayer life, isn't it? If you wake up day after day after day and you just brush your teeth, comb your hair, shave your face, and out the door you go, then then you will not be successful if you are not a praying soul. Well, I pray in the car on the way to work. Good luck. Until we become purposeful, oh, the modern word is intentional, in our persistent approach to God to overcome our adversaries, you will never do it. Well, pastor, that's a pretty disheartening message. No, you should take great heart in this message this morning because the woman had no ability in herself. All she had to do was go to the judges and they helped me get victory over him. And God says, yeah, I'll do that. Why does Jesus then finish? It's the reason, I should say. Jesus finishes the way he does in verse 8. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. He'll take care of it if you'll just turn it over to him in prayer. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. In other words, shall he find persistent faith because he finds persistent prayer. Jesus in his earthly ministry gives to us a model for our earthly struggles. There's a couple things in our own prayer life over our adversaries that we should be praying. We should pray seeking to glorify God. You know what that will give you victory over? Your flesh. Victory over the flesh. In John 17, we won't take time this morning to look at it in its great detail. It's a wonderful chapter. In fact, the very first service, very first message I ever preached in this church was from John chapter 17. It's that important of a chapter to me. It is a chapter that I've long loved and is probably my favorite in all of the Bible. In that uh, chapter, Jesus is praying, and we call it his great high priestly prayer for us, that the Father would be glorified through his own life, and that the world would be able to see the glory of the Father through him. And then he prays for us as well, that we would glorify him. The second thing that we should pray determinedly is that we seek to do God's will. Not just to glorify him, but that we seek to do God's will. Turn over with me to Matthew chapter 25, or 26, I should say. Matthew chapter number 26. The passage in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is on his way to the cross of Calvary, the betrayal comes just immediately on its heels. And in it we find that Jesus prays that the cup of suffering would pass for him, from him I should say. We begin our reading in verse number 36. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane and saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. This is what's from Kentucky. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. 
tarry ye here and watch with me or pray with me. A little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Could you not pray with me for this hour? This hour is trying, Jesus is saying. This hour is difficult. This is God the Son requesting this. You think your battles are hard. Imagine the battles he fought. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. That verse, if it's not underlined in your Bible, ought to be underlined in your Bible. Here you find the humanity and the deity of God, not at war with each other, but the deity winning out over the flesh. Oh, my Father, if this cup, this suffering, this cross, this burden, this payment, this redemption, this atonement may not pass away from me, except I drink it, I must do it, I know I must do it, thy will be done. He came and found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy. He left them and went again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now, take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus prayed that the cup of suffering would pass from him, but he concludes by saying, Effectively, not my will, but thine be done. He prays the Father's will to be done and accomplished in his life, not his own will. Jesus' flesh did not want to die, but Jesus yielded himself to the will of his Father that was set in motion before the world began. Our flesh often does not want us to endure trials, troubles, and distress in this life. But God's will often is that we are to endure such circumstances to increase, to deepen, and to expand our faith in him. And it's only through prayer that you can survive. That's it. You can ask Job, you can ask Paul, you can ask Abraham, you can ask a host of other Bible leaders and characters that we find in the pages of Scripture. It is only through faithful prayer and dependency upon God that we make it through the darkest hours of our life. Amen. Determined seekers must submit to God's will as they make their requests known unto Him. Whenever you realize you are praying against God's will, don't stop praying, just alter your prayer. Pray that God would be glorified and that you would come to understand the will of God in the midst of this trial. I like what Warren Wearsby says of prayer. The immediate purpose of prayer is the accomplishing of God's will on earth. The ultimate purpose of prayer is the eternal glory of God. And that should be your driving motivation when you pray. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 tells us the second thing is that we are to, or the third thing is that we are to seek to commune with God. And it came to pass in those days that he went into a mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. This is speaking of Jesus. Here's what it says in Matthew 14 and verse 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. Just him and God. Just him and his Father. On that mountaintop praying. 
He wanted communion with his father. Can you imagine being the divine son, eternally existent and separated because of your mortality, because of your incarnation from the communication with his father? I have no doubt that Jesus often was found alone praying in communion with his father. It's what he's known for eternity. It's who he is. He sets for us the perfect example of how we ought to live as well. Prayer is the way to strengthen our relationship with God. Those in relationship will naturally want to seek to communicate with each other. It would be an amazing thing if I told you Jessica and I had been happily married for over 17 years, but we never talked to each other except for Saturday night from 6 to 8. You would say to me, that's not possible. And I would say, you're right. Why do you think your relationship with God should be any different? That's right, parable is teaching us that this woman would not leave the judge alone because of the adversary's work against her. Do you approach God that way? God, I need your help. Sometimes we approach God in that way, but it's usually like this. Oh man, I really messed up. There's no way out of this problem. God, I'm going to keep praying until you get me out of this problem. That, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying here, or the woman here in the parable has had someone do something to her. The adversary has done something to her. Our nature does stuff to us all the time, our spiritual man. What he's preaching, teaching in this parable, the principle is that we must come to God and, and hope and trust in him for victory day by day. We see letter B, the decision of the sovereign. Now, aren't you glad that God is a just God? Yes. It means he's perfectly equitable based upon divine eternal justice, not social. Sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this concept. And the answer is because we're not sovereign. Because we aren't eternal, because we are not omniscient like God is, we often struggle with, why do I need to pray? I mean, if he knows me and he loves me, wouldn't he just give me everything I want? And God says, no, no, that's not at all how I created you. My sovereignty overrules all of your stupidity. I had someone say that to me a long time ago. That's a wonderful way to look at your own life. Sovereignty is greater than all of our own foolishness. All of the things that we think we need, and we think we need him to do. And so until we get down to what the right thing is and the right request, God says, keep praying, but keep discovering me through the word of God and approach me in the things that you've learned, in the way that you've learned them. God's timing is perfect in how he answers our requests. God's reasoning in answering a request, yes, no, or not now, is perfect as well. Even if you don't understand it, and there's a whole lot of things in pastoring, and a whole lot of circumstances I've looked at in the lives of church members of ours, people that Jess and I love dearly, that we cannot explain it on this side of heaven. And you are a fool to try to if you don't know the answer. But you can pray, God, you know why. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The woman before the judge had no power over the judge's decision. But she did have the ability to come and make the request known to the judge consistently. How consistently do you pray for your own spiritual well-being? Your own spiritual walk with God? Your own spiritual growth? The cutting away of the flesh, the saying no to the world, and the denial of the devil's tempting and traps. 
Philippians 4 and verse 6 says, be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. In other words, don't be anxious. Don't worry. Worry should not be part of our spiritual journey. It doesn't appear that this woman was worried. She was just working. Keep coming. Keep praying. Keep requesting. Keep the attack up. Not against God, but the attack against the adversary. And the best way to win against your adversary was to petition the judge. In your prayer life, you need to understand the same way to overcome your own flesh, your own weaknesses, your own faults, your own failures, is to petition the judge to help you day by day. God is in control, and a proper prayer life will keep our emotions under control. Yeah. Jesus closes by demonstrating sovereignty when he asks, When I return, will I, the Son of Man, find faith on this earth? And the question is, if he were to return today, right now, at this moment, would he find faith in your life in the form of a good life of prayer and persistent prayer? Persistent purpose brings the second parable, and that is, the, that is of the penitent pattern. Persistence and penitence. Every time I say that word, that probably betrays my, not evil upbringing, but some of the movies I watch. I always think of that movie where Indiana Jones has to have the penitent man that will pass. It's a horrible movie, by the way. But it's the idea of a penitent man is one that's humble before God. That's what Jesus says here. Humility, integrity, honesty. We'll look at these things. In fact, Luke sets the context. Certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Oh, my goodness. There's a lot of times when we pray, we're praying God's judgment down upon someone. There might have been people this week. Because of the events of this week in this country that might have prayed some judgment down on someone. How about you pray some mercy and grace down upon someone? That's awful hard, Pastor. I know. Welcome to praying. It's not even easy for me. That's why I married a woman that's much godlier than I am, so she can keep me straight. And how should we be talking that way? <laughs> praying is not easy. But praying is the pathway to success. The parable here, clearly, is a targeted parable. And he spake this parable on the certain, which trusted in themselves. But the parable serves as a cautionary one for all of us. If you pray in self-righteousness, do not expect God to answer your prayers. The prayer that is being spoken of here likely is the temple prayer that was during the time of annual sacrifice. It's when everyone was called to the temple. It's when everyone would have to pray. It's when everyone was waiting for the priest, the high priest, to do his, his work. And so these two men are gathered there, and Jesus gives a story about them, a parable about them. He casts truth alongside and helps us to understand. The heart of the praying folks is revealed. The heart sh is shown in what each of the men thought. The publican was a penitent man, while the Pharisee was a proud man. We find two facts about the publican that establish a good pattern for our own 
penitent prayers. It is how we approach God. We found in the first one why, because we have to keep doing it. It's the only way we affect change in our own lives and get victory over the adversary. But here we find the how. So how do I approach God? I mean, I'm told to come boldly, but how do I do that? Well, you do it in honesty and in humility. Number one, we see the honesty that is necessary. The publican knew who he was as we read this parable. The publican also knew what he deserved. There's no greater honesty than this. Knowing who you are and what you deserve. When we begin to think that God owes us something because of our past or our pedigree, then we get in trouble pretty quick. The Pharisee believed that he was a blessing to God. Did you read verses 11 and 12? He was not like the dregs of society. He wasn't like those other losers that come up here, Lord. I am your privileged saint. He should have said he was the chief of all sinners. The Pharisee was glad not to be like those filthy sinners, and he missed that he himself was a dirty, rotten sinner. The publican, while the Pharisee believed he was a blessing to God, knew that his life was of no value in himself. The first and most important prayer of penitence is the prayer of salvation. No one just takes God into their life as a component of the awesome person you already are. Hey, I'll take Jesus with the awesome guy I am. You say, does that mean I'm not saved? Listen, if that's how you approach salvation, it's highly likely you're not. There has to be a penitent process. There is a coming to Jesus. I don't go to heaven, but by the grace of God. I'm a sinner. I am in need of a Savior. That is the direct context of the publican in his prayer here. Penitent prayer of salvation is one of deep sorrow and awareness of our personal condition before God. The Bible says the publican went away justified at the beginning of verse 14. Not because his prayer was better, but because he was honest in his approach to God. When we come to God, we must come in conversation that is honest for our condition. By the way, you're not fooling God. God in heaven is not going, oh, I, I didn't know that about you. Oh, thank you. God in heaven knows everything. Right. And yet sometimes in our prayer life, we come to God and we say, oh, God, I need this and I need this. And please don't ask me about that over there. I, I just don't want to talk about this. Well, why are you acting that way? Just be honest with God. By the way, he'll be honest with you. Do you know what he'll tell you? That's wrong, but I still love you. Yeah. And when God says something's wrong, stop doing it. But all he's asking for is us to come in honest conversation to him. When we come to God, we must come in conversation that is honest for our condition. There is no reason we can claim that God owes us any answer to any prayer. And that was the problem for the Pharisee. The Pharisee actually believed, as he was praying, that God owed him something. That is not honest. God owes you nothing. That's hard to understand. It's hard for our... Finite minds to comprehend that because we want self-worth. But God tells us that without Christ, we are worth nothing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. In Christ, 
And because of Christ, we are worth everything to him. We may not be worth anything to anybody else, but we're worth everything to him because Christ lives in us. When we come to Jesus Christ, we have to have that honest conversation. God, I'm coming. I'm asking. I'm requesting. I'm pleading. I'm begging for this, not because of me, but because of you. Amen. And for this reason. It's a very honest approach from this publican. Letter B, the second thing we find is the humility that is blessed. The publican was humbled by his condition. His request to God was from no authority, no words, and interestingly, with no expectation. Notice at the end of verse number 13, if this is not underlined in your Bible, it ought to be. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, and Pastor, this morning you, you kind of alluded to this. Am I not to pray about my job? Am I not to pray about my family? Am I not to pray about... And the answer is all of those things have their right and proper place. The problem is those things move in and crowd out the necessary prayer life. Yeah. It would do us all a whole lot of good if every morning we woke up, we spent 10 to 15 minutes just praying, God, be merciful to me a sinner. Not because we need to be saved again, but we need to be reminded as to what our salvation did for us. By the way, God is always merciful to those that cry out to him, to those that seek him. We'll see that in just a few moments in the book of Psalms. When you pray with this mindset, no authority, no words, no expectation, it isn't a guarantee that God will work for what you ask. Rather, it is a guarantee that what you will be asking will always be according to his will. That's the secret to success. When I ask with this mindset, in honest humility, I'm not asking to consume upon my own lust. Rather, I'm asking so that my life can bring glory to God. When we have been truly humbled, we are not asking for things in our own lust or for our own desires. Rather, in a true state of humility, we are asking that God's will would be done, and we are wanting him to be glorified in every part of our life. By the way, God sees through false humility. The word of God is called the perfect law of liberty. It is a mirror into our soul. You can fool every person in this room, including those closest to you. God sees right through. If God sees through your false humility, you should too. You should forsake it this morning. Say, God, I want to come in honest humility to you. By the way, this is why honesty always has to precede true humility. If you're not honest with yourself, you'll never truly be humble. If you're a liar, you will always be trying to find the next way to make yourself look good. Make yourself in a stronger position. We live, friends, in a delusional age. It's a sign that we are likely in the end of all the end times. Because we live in an age of self-esteem, self-worth, self-aggrandizement, self-everywhere. It's truly a delusional age. Everyone in this age is a victim and everyone is right in their own eyes. And none of it is to the glory of God. I'm asking God for this request and I deserve an answer from him, says the Pharisee. 
in his hypocrisy, in his own hubris, he's forgotten honesty and humility are the ways to affect change in his own life and to see God work in his own life. A person, by the way, that's pleading for mercy, and that's what the publican cried for, mercy, is asking for God's grace to be bestowed upon him. Mercy means I'm admitting to him I don't deserve anything, and grace is him saying to me, you're right, you don't, but here's my gift. So when we plead mercy, all we're saying is, God, please pour out your grace upon me. By the way, God loves when penitent sinners come to him that way. He loves to pour out his grace. If you've never experienced it, I encourage you, don't just rush home and pray a magical worded prayer, but get in truth, in honesty, into a state of true humility, and begin to seek God, and he will manifest himself in ways that you cannot even imagine. Real prayer is not about the physical world problems, but about spiritual kingdom realities, is what these parables are teaching. This is not to say that we cannot or even should not ask God for healing, for direction, for him to supply a need that we cannot. However, Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The problem is we are seeking all these things to be added unto you, but we've forgotten the honest humility that is needed first. Pattern is important to God. The publican's penitent prayer was directed only upon the mercy of God. Take your Bibles and turn back with me to Psalm 51. Yes, it'll be on the screen, but I encourage you, look in the Bible. I have in my Bible a star next to the top of this and put my favorite psalm. Now, you don't have to copy me, but you can find out for yourself that it becomes your favorite psalm when you understand it and read it. You can find this psalm, this companion passage in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 20. Nathan the prophet has come and taken his old preacher's finger and stuck it right in the nose of David and said, Thou art the man. You had Uriah killed. You slept with Bathsheba. It is your child and you are a sinner. And David has found that. Yeah. It's time for him to have an honest and humble conversation with God. And this psalm is the result. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. By the way, this is a man whom the Spirit of God rested upon. But because of sin, it was gone. That's an Old Testament principle. But for us in the New Testament, when we sin, we quench the Spirit's presence in our own life. And we feel a lot like David did. Verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Man, you can see the publican's words in this psalm. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and the hidden parts thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop. That was a process that the Levitical priests would do. They would take that oil, they would take that fragrance, and they would mark the sinner. 
who was seeking forgiveness. And I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear the joy and gladness. By the way, when you're a sinner and far from God, you do not hear much joy or gladness in your spiritual life. But when you, through honest humility, come back to God in a pattern of true spiritual prayer that will change the world, you understand that joy and gladness quickly return. Bones which thou hast broken, we redeem. Hide thy face from my sin, and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. By the way, any of us who have ever found ourselves in deep seasons of sin, have we not prayed that very prayer? I can tell you as a young man in my early 20s who was not living in a way that pleased God or pleased my parents, I was far from God, and I often, as I was making the way back to walking with God in the way I should be, prayed, Lord, don't be done with me yet. But David prayed. And thank God he wasn't. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. By the way, don't ever forget whose salvation it is. I'm not trying to be just too judgmental here. I'm being careful. But we didn't do anything to earn salvation. It's our gift. It's been given to us. But the salvation is his. He earned it. He provides it. We're just the beneficiaries. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Oh, friends. The need for humility. So the question in closing this morning is, do you pray properly? Is your prayer time filled up with a wish, want, need list of only the temporal matters of this world? God, I need a job. I need a spouse. I need a car. I need a house. No, I'm not Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Lord, I need healing. Lord, I need to avoid being sick. I can't afford it right now. Lord, I want Joe to feel better. I think Joe's feeling fine this morning. Is okay? There's nothing wrong with requests of supplication, but friend, if that's the only way you know how to pray, you are missing out on what prayer is. Right. Amen. You say, well, Pastor, do you just know more than I do? No, no, no. In honest humility, I've discovered the truth. That when I come to God and pray, when no one else is around and I enter into my own closet in secret, there's a lot of things that I pray about that you don't know anything about. Because they all happen within me. They're my own wounds. They're my own struggles. They're the things that are adversarial to me, of my flesh, of this world, and the devil, and his unrelenting attacks upon those that love Jesus Christ. I dare say you are no different than I. This morning, each of us either should bow and pray in our own chair and say, God, help me to pray the way I ought to pray with the correct purpose. And that is, my purpose is to be constant in it, persistent in it. Keep praying! And when you're done, pray some more. But also content and mournful, understanding that God owes you nothing. You owe him everything. You will come to God and pray that way. Your home marriage, your children, your life will be different than you can ever imagine. Amen. Father, help us, I pray.